Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Posick, and today I'm speaking with Virginia Torrey, author of Reinventing Bankruptcy Law, a history of the company's Creditors Arrangement Act, published by University of Toronto Press. Meticulously researched and multidisciplinary, this book provides a comprehensive yet concise history of CCAA law and spans the course of the 20th century, framing developments within broader changes in Canadian institutions, including federalism, judicial review, and statutory interpretation. And to do so, Virginia adopts a multifaceted approach to research that combines legal history, socio-legal theory, and ideas from political science. Virginia Torrey, welcome to New Books in Law. I'm thrilled that you can join me to discuss your recent book, Reinventing Bankruptcy Law, A History of the Company's Creditor Arrangement Act. Thanks, Nick. It's a a pleasure to join you today for this conversation. For listeners who are less familiar with Canadian law, what is the Company's Creditors Arrangement Act? Uh, The Company's Creditors Arrangement Act is Canada's premier restructuring regime for large companies. So it's our our main bankruptcy statute for large companies. Uh, And it's essentially an analog to U.S. Chapter 11, although the origins are a bit different. How does it relate exactly to Chapter 11? Uh, Well, it it achieves functionally a similar purpose to Chapter 11 today. Uh, And in the 80s and 90s in particular, uh, Canadian lawyers and judges looked to Chapter 11 and case law developing under Chapter 11 to uh, draw inspiration for how to craft our restructuring statute uh, into something that could address the need uh, to restructure large businesses and hopefully save jobs and uh, have positive knock-on effects for various stakeholder groups. And reinventing bankruptcy law really delves into the history of, and we'll call it the CCAA for short. Um, Why is that history important um, and how does it shape the application today? Yeah, so uh, the book is a a 20th century history of the CCAA. So I I begin prior to its enactment in the 30s and trace its evolution up until roughly the year 2000. Um, obviously, it's still our statute for large corporate restructuring, so it, it, you know things continue to evolve. Uh, but that 
that period of roughly 100 years gave me a good length of time uh, with which to track continuities and ruptures in both law and practice. And starting prior to the existence of the statute kind of gave a, a sense of like where, you know, where did the corporate restructuring landscape sit prior to this law? Um, and the project was really, um, it was not the project I set out to do. Uh, I set out to do a contemporary study of CCAA law, but I, I ended up running into a lot of um, what I would term received wisdom about what the CCAA was, why it was enacted, and there was really nothing to support a lot of these statements that I read in case law and, and even some journal articles. It just sort of got repeated one article to the next, and some of them seemed tautological to me. So that really piqued my curiosity and uh, caused me to want to dig into the history. Um, and that took some doing because there's very little in the way of uh, materials, like published materials about the CCAA. It just kind of like appeared. Um the legislative debates were less than six pages. Uh, you know, there, there was not an active interest in bankruptcy at, in the 30s when this was enacted the same way uh, that there is today with a lot of scholars writing and thinking about it. Um, and so I didn't really know what the significance of the history would be until, until I'd actually finished or nearly finished the project. Um, and what turned out to be significant is that contemporary narratives about what the CCAA was and what it was intended to do are essentially entirely unsupported by the historical record. And the, the, the purpose of the act was really to help large creditors, whereas the contemporary narrative is that it was about helping debtors. And so that, you know, misapprehension of history then factors into an explanatory account of what courts thought they were doing when they started to read this act expansively and exercise their ju jurisdiction or uh, discretion to expand the parameters of the act. Uh, so the, the history ends up being significant because it exposes errors in recent case law and uh, exposes the fact that much of the development in this area of law over the last 30 to 40 years or so has been based on um, a misapprehension of history. And so that, you know, that that's the end of my book, but it, it, it's also the beginning of a much larger conversation uh, about bankruptcy law in Canada, what we want it to do, what it's intended to do, and uh, whether the methods we've used to achieve that are um, defensible, I think, uh, in, in a democratic society. And your research, you found some previously unpublished resources, some materials that really hadn't been seen before. Uh, what was it like discovering that treasure trove? <laughs> How did that shape your process? Right. Yes. So that was a very exciting part of the process. Um, so as I mentioned, there was very little writing on the CCA in any form. And so if it's very brief statements um, about it, and a lot of like silences, and it was, it was actually kind of conspicuous, these gaps. And it wasn't as if, you know, you're kind of going through a series of, of things and then noticing, oh, there's an obvious gap here. It's just more of a gut sense of like, there's got to be more to this. Like, what is not being said? Um, why is, you know, Parliament looking at this act and basically not debating it at all? Um, and and so I, I, I tried to track down every single source and I, I literally tracked down every single source I could find on the CCAA. And that just tells you it was, there was really not that much to find. 
Um, but I remember this one moment where it really clicked for me, and I was in the Toronto Reference Library um, in, in Canada, and I um, this one group, the Dominion Mortgage and Investments Association, comes up at a few points in the CCAA's history, and it was a trade group. It's now defunct, and they had um, they used to publish annual yearbooks for their membership. So I discovered online that the Toronto Reference Library had some of these yearbooks. So I thought I'll check those like in the relevant years to see if uh, there's anything about the CCAA. And I, I went down there and I found the kind of proverbial smoking gun, if you will, uh, because in there they say like, this act is clearly unconstitutional, but we need it so desperately that we're not gonna make any submissions to parliament about it. Because if we do, we think, you know, this act will obviously be declared unconstitutional and then we will, um, you know, kind of thwart any efforts to find a solution to the, the need to restructure secured debt. And so that was like the aha moment because I realized, okay, this is why they're not talking about the real issue. There's a huge constitutional issue that this can't be done federally. That was the view. Only the provinces can regulate secured credit. And then it also pointed to the fact that, you know, this act is needed because the large institutions that hold this secured credit, many of them were large life insurance companies and the like, desperately need a way to restructure uh, large companies, and they're unable to do that using their traditional methods due to changes in financing leading up to the 1930s. And so that, you know, told me two things. Uh, you know, the constitutional story then became very important, uh, just like the United States, Canada's federation. So we have this division of powers between provinces and the, the federal government. And then secondly, the story was really about creditors and more specifically secured creditors. And so that, that led to kind of a rich, you know, line of inquiry. Um, and I realized, you know, bankruptcy at that time, bankruptcy in Canada didn't apply to secured credit at all. And so searching through, you know, bankruptcy literature or texts was always going to be a dead end. And I had to start looking through corporate financing literature. And then I started seeing the CCAA pop up in multiple places. And so that, that you know, kind of could go on about that for quite a while. But um, one way to think about it is, you know, I, I had been thinking this is a bankruptcy problem. It was really more of a corporate law problem. And the, the 30s is this moment where corporate restructuring goes from being this corporate law phenomenon to being a bankruptcy phenomenon. And so that, you know, is also this you know, critical juncture in terms of the development of bankruptcy law, right, that, that now it encompasses corporate restructuring. And going back to the mythology of the CCAA, one might imagine that it was coming out of public interest, but you found that it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the contemporary narrative about the history, that this was a, you know, circumstantially, this was passed in the Great Depression. And so the, you know, I think it was easy to think, you know, when there's not a lot of, you know, primary source writing about it that, you know, okay, like large companies are on the verge of bankruptcy. We need to save them because um, it's the Great Depression. You know, it's not really any one company's fault. It's just this broader phenomenon and people are going to lose jobs and so on. But that kind of way of thinking about restructuring is sort of a post-1980s phenomenon. Like that is not how people in the 1930s viewed restructuring. Um, when you said bankruptcy in the 30s, it meant people lost their jobs. It didn't mean people saved them because they restructured. Whereas today, it's almost the opposite. Um, 
And that might start to change. We're at an interesting moment with the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's affecting businesses and government programming. But in the, in the 80s, 90s, and into the, the 2000s, there's this idea that if you, know, you restructure that's in the broader public interest, you're saving firms, you can save jobs, various other stakeholders benefit. You know, like if you have a, you know, a business di- district and there's a local restaurant there, if the business goes uh, bankrupt and it's no longer there, the restaurant is affected. So uh, that you know that but that's a 1980s way of, of looking at it. And what was very interesting is is that in the 30s in Canada, um, you have these examples of companies with huge public importance, and and the instinct would be to nationalize them or bail them out, um, but not let that be something left up to creditors to decide. Um, yeah, so this, the way we think about bankruptcy has really shifted, and that points to the importance of this broader context. You know, bankruptcy doesn't mean the same thing in all places to all people, and and that's part of the historical exercise of really trying to put yourself into the shoes of someone in the 30s and think about the CCAA and bankruptcy from the perspective of the 1930s. And then the other thing that really didn't add up, and, and this is where, you know, in, in a way the misapprehension of history didn't have to be as sort of pronounced as it was. Like the CCA actually specifically excludes from its scope the companies that had the greatest public interest in the 1930s. So railroads are excluded. Telegraph companies are excluded. uh, And then insurance companies, trust companies, banks, et cetera. So these are the the sort of, these would be prototypical companies that have a huge national interest, right? Uh, Telco. Um, today, you know, a railroad, or you might think of an airline, like companies that provide this sort of important good, this important part of the infrastructure. Um, so to have an act that excludes those companies from its scope, you know, suggests at least, at least it should suggest a more nuanced view of, of how bankruptcy might serve the public interest uh, than, than the idea that, you know, all bankruptcy potentially is good and can be used for the public benefit. Um, and then the other thing is like the CCA is, is really skeletal. It's a very short statute that really doesn't, you know, it doesn't give you a policy rationale. Usually there'd be a preamble that kind of sheds light. Like everything that it says is very brief. Uh, and then as I really started to recognize this disjuncture between how people saw bankruptcy in the 30s and how they see it today, because everything the CCAA actually said about that was equivocal. Like it could be taken as helping creditors or it could be taken as helping debtors and the public interest. And I, I, you know, and I think that again goes to this need when doing an historical study to really step into the shoes of someone in that period to the extent you can, because it's easy to misinterpret something by applying your own lens or framework uh, from your, your, present moment. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's just every assumption I had going into this, and I I thought I had like stripped myself of my assumptions, but every assumption I had turned out to be wrong um, and and, like significantly wrong, like the opposite of right. (laughs) And one of the hallmarks of your book is this kind of an understanding of the stakeholders, right? How do you, as a historian, get the texture of that, right? How do you get really the sense of that context because you're not just looking at a very strict analysis but you're looking at what is what's 
in the air what's mm -hmm. the zeitgeist mm -hmm. yeah um that's an excellent question i think that's something that every historian grapples with like you know i mean i think two thoughts one historians tend to specialize in a certain time period for a reason so in history it's very very common to say like this is my century you know i'm a 15th century medieval historian and i look at say the catholic church um my my folk and and also in a given uh, place you know so maybe catholic church in you know this particular country um so that's a little different than how lawyers tend to approach analysis and in the book i try and you know, incorporate both a legal analysis, but also an historical and a theoretical one. And so I really had to immerse myself in Canada in the Great Depression. Um, and I'm still immersed in that for, for my next project. And so the more you immerse yourself in that, like you just, you remember things that you might have read in a book that wasn't strictly about what you're studying now, but it, it kind of helps to fill in that broader picture. But it's a it's an exercise in, in building up this mental image of what of what it was like at a given time and place. So that's a, that's an important part. And it was, you know, I read very widely and, and sort of deeply and not all of those sources make their way into the final book. Cause sometimes it's just like a background piece. Um, and then secondly, you know, you kind of, you kind of follow certain threads, right? So like the Dominion Mortgage and Investments Association ends up being like this important stakeholder at a few points in the CCAA's history. Um, later on, the act is like, um, you know, slated for repeal and, and this group, you know, comes to its rescue and ensures that it stays on the statute books. So you can also kind of probe by, by delving into certain stakeholders like that group and reading about them. Um, another group that has been active in bankruptcy in Canada was the Canadian Credit Men's Trust Association, uh, which uh, it still exists today under a different name. Uh, and that, that group was very active in terms of our, our bankruptcy law for individuals. Uh, so I, I looked at that group too, but then again, like their, their in, interactions with the CCAA were really kind of at the periphery. And then, you know, this is, this is partly the time period and, and probably also partly Canada being a small country population-wise. There are actually certain individuals that, you know, pop up at a few points. And so William Casper Fraser is one who writes about the CCAA and then he, he acts for, um, for the, uh, I believe DMIA, the Dominion Mortgage and Investments Association. And so you've, you know, I would then do some reading about him and like find out, you know, to the extent I can, um, you know, what was his uh, practice, you know, what were the sort of things he was thinking and writing about uh, and then various politicians as well. So it's, um, it's definitely not a linear process to to ascertain that kind of context, but uh, you know the the sort of more you immerse yourself in it, the more you have this sort of picture built up. Um, so I think I'm going to stay in the 30s for a little while and and uh, build upon uh, that picture before I, I shift into something new. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Had you share that world in 
such a vivid and compelling way. How did you think about the audience for this book? Because on one hand, you have a really rich historic rigor and a really academic, really kind of rich academic rigor to this. But on the other hand, there's very immediate applications for a legal practitioner. How do you imagine the audience? How do you imagine the person reading mm-hmm. this book? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, this is my first book, so I, I think there's also a bit of idealism probably in this process, but I, I really wanted to reach multiple audiences because I, I felt this was a, a compelling story for anyone who does insolvency. So, at, you know, at, at one level, right, that there's a very obvious application there, as you say, if you're a lawyer or you're a, a trustee or a receiver, uh, or if you're a judge or if you're a policymaker, anyone who's kind of touching on that bankruptcy space, I think it's very important um, to shed light on, on some of the stuff that has animated our bankruptcy process, especially because it hasn't come through the legislature. It's been a very, like the, the, the lawmaking process is very inverted and it tends, the, the changes happen in court, usually on an ad hoc basis. And then it becomes kind of the standard practice. And then sometimes it gets memorialized into a, a legislative amendment that basically codifies what is the case law practice. Um, that is unlike any other aspect of Canadian bankruptcy law, and it, it's the opposite of what one would anticipate. So shedding light on that, I thought, was very important. Um, you know, one, because I think that process raises questions. You know, if, uh, you know, we have unelected judges using discretion, like, like routinely, to essentially make bankruptcy law, I mean, this really points to Parliament's neglect of that area of law. And that maybe we need to return to a legislature-led process of lawmaking. Um, but then, you know, at maybe a little bit more of a pragmatic level, you know, if, if Parliament doesn't get around to bankruptcy reform, a book like this or any other kind of idea could potentially infiltrate lawmaking um, because it you know, just needs to be raised in a case that then, you know, affirms that as the way to do it. And then, you know, you can kind of, there's multiple entry points to changing, changing things that way. Um, so that's sort of the legal application. Um, but then I, I, you know, I didn't want this to be a book only about insolvency because that's actually kind of a small market in Canada in terms of who, who might be reached. And I, I think the theoretical lens adds a lot of portability in terms of, you know, this is the dynamics of change in this practice area. And there's probably some portability of other commercial law areas that, that see similar things in terms of which groups are involved uh, and how, how that process unfolds. And so then it's, you know, it's a study of legal change, the dynamics of legal change with bankruptcy being this case study, right? But then that might have you know, um, explanatory power elsewhere. And then um, from an historical perspective, you know, there's very little on the history of bankruptcy in Canada, as is probably the case in many jurisdictions. And, you know, this makes a contribution to that sort of business literature. Like there hasn't been a lot of literature that has paired business history with law. Um, Sometimes there's, you know, like historians aren't necessarily lawyers. So, you know, like if an historian had set out to do this or someone without legal training, you know, there wouldn't, you know, it would have been a different book, right? Because there wouldn't have been the same attention to the the doctrinal issues. Um, So, you know, I'm trying to reach, I, I think, 
the sort of historians and trying to reach the legal community. Um, and then, you know, the dynamic of change level that could potentially have portability in a variety of contexts. I use a lot of ideas from socio-legal studies and, and political science. And so that, you know, kind of reaches a different level and is part of a different conversation. Um, and I, you know, in my sort of somewhat in, into the future, not my next project, but probably a couple of projects from now, I would like to pick that up and think about bankruptcy in a theoretical and abstract context in terms of the role it plays in society and in the economy. So that's sort of, I think, foregrounding that a little bit and um, something I hope to return to. In the- and how did you become interested in bankruptcy as a topic in general and the CCAA mm-hmm. specifically? Um, it was sort of happenstance. I was in law school at the time of the global financial crisis. So I was interested in commercial law topics, but then bankruptcy ended up being very timely. I did uh, work as a research assistant for someone who was doing bankruptcy bankruptcy research, and that really sparked an interest. And so then I I did a master's looking at um, a major insolvency in Canada during the the financial crisis, and then that sort of dovetailed into an interest uh, in pursuing a PhD. So I, I ended up thinking I was going to do kind of contemporary law. And then I think as I alluded to a little earlier in the conversation, um, the kind of lack of satisfactory answers to some of my questions about the history then led into this study as I followed my curiosity. So that's sort of how I got interested in it to begin with. And I think this, you know, the, the part that sustains that interest, because uh, it's still very much a, a passion of mine, is it's a very technical area of law. And I, I think that a, sort of appeals to me and I guess uh, you know just being a commercial law area and it's an area where there hasn't been a great deal of uh, historical scholarship or what I might call a kind of unraveling scholarship where you kind of take a puzzle or things that don't seem to fit and then try and find a rational explanation for how we got there or, or at least a, something that sheds light on how we got there so I think there's just a lot of um, interesting angles where you can you can pursue different projects that touch on various aspects of that so that that's sort of you know how I got into it and, and kind of what what keeps me interested I, I think the other thing in in bankruptcy and especially in a small jurisdiction where you're looking at bankruptcy is there's a lot of a lot of history that is yet to be written I mean there was no history of the of our premier corporate restructuring statute until this book. So, you know, that for someone who wants to pair history uh, and the sense of discovery that comes with that, with a a legal, doctrinal and and theoretical lens, it's really prime material for that kind of stuff. And this book is groundbreaking in a sense. Did you feel any pressure with that? (laughs) Um, I I didn't only because I didn't know until the end it was going to be groundbreaking. (laughs) So uh, maybe ignorance is bliss. I... uh, I, you know, I, it morphed into an exploratory project. And I, you know, in hindsight, I think if I was my PhD supervisor, like I, I would have been nervous, but I, I had a, a supervisor who was really excellent and, um, you know, kind of gave me free reign for a couple of years there to just kind of explore various things, you know, and see if I could pull it together. And then it started to come together and he guided me in, in that process because uh, I just went into it, you know, with no idea of what I might find. 
and just kind of hoping I find something and I have to like comfort myself with like, even if I find that, you know, the conventional wisdom is true, that's still to prove that in a sustained way is a discovery of sorts. So, um, you know, then by the end, you know, the last year or so of the PhD, like I, I started to appreciate the, you know, the contribution and, and what, what it was going to mean for the field. And that then at that point, I did have a little bit of, of nerves. And, you know, there was a lot of kind of double and triple checking certain things just to make sure I'd really not overstated what I found. Uh, and then I had a kind of a, a, a somewhat slow transition into the book because I needed a little distance from the project before I sat down to revise it into a manuscript. So I, I stepped away for a bit and I, I worked on some other stuff. And then when I came back to it, um, you know, I felt like, yeah, this is, this is good. Like this, this is going to, um, you know, turn some heads, I think this, but, but it, it's, this book is well-researched and, and the arguments are well-supported. So it's not easy going to be easy to just dismiss that right as inconvenient information in light of how we like to do bankruptcy in Canada or what have you. So, uh, yeah. And then it was published in this, um, pandemic year. So it's, I, I can't say I have a real sense of the reception just yet because it's been a bit of a, there was no book launch or anything. It's been a bit of an unusual uh, time. So, um, we shall see uh, what, what the reactions are. Yeah, and for our listeners, your book came directly out of your um, thesis. And so I imagine that there's a lot that you learned just in the process of turning your thesis into a book. How do you imagine this body of work in a new form? Uh, what did you learn in that process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a very good question. Um, so, you know, one thing I would say is, as I was Finalizing the thesis, I had this one chapter, which I ended up scrapping from the thesis because my, uh, my program had strict length requirements. So many PhD programs will have you write like a first chapter as kind of a literature review in the first year or so of the program, just to kind of help make sure students are moving along. So I, I, I duly did that and I did a, a chapter on bankruptcy theory. And but by the end of the project, you know, that was sort of an orphan chapter. Like it didn't really, the project had kind of gone in a different direction. So that didn't really um, fit neatly. So so that was the one I, I scrapped to meet the length requirements. Um, so that in a way, you know, that would be the kind of chapter you'd also scrap from a, from a book. Um, you, you know, one wants to sit and read a whole literature review. So then I had a, a thesis that was six chapters long and, you know, basically introduction, conclusion. And then I had um, a, a theoretical framework chapter and two substantive chapters and then a, a synthesis chapter. And I, uh, when it came to doing the book manuscript, I, I totally restructured what I had, but I did not really uh, alter the content. So there wasn't huge amounts of cutting or adding. It was really just an exercise of taking those six chapters and, and turning them into 10, you know, brief balanced chapters with, you know, the, the synthesis worked into each chapter at the end. So I was very attentive to structure uh, at that stage. And then there were there was some peer review feedback uh, on the book that, you know, suggested addressing certain points. So I also addressed that and that did entail a little bit of addition or, or reworking. Um, I, 
I had served as book review editor for a law journal for, um, I think, about seven years by the time I sat down to turn my own PhD thesis into a book. So I was familiar with a lot of the common complaints of reviewers and around theses in particular. And so I, I really tried to proactively address those in the book. And, uh, and so I think in the end, it, it really, it's, it's balanced and nicely structured um, and it's very regular. And uh, I think that, I think that's a strength of the editing process and it's, it's a lot of work I learned. Uh, so I understand why there is a temptation to skip it, but I think it makes it a lot more accessible because you can sit down and read one chapter and, and some books based on PhDs, like one chapter might be 40 pages and another one is 10 and that it can feel uneven. Um, and so that I, I learned a lot about the, the value of that. Um, yeah. And then, you know, going through the whole peer review process is, is interesting. The first time on a project like this, I, I was very happy to get two you know, positive reviews and um, one reviewer was very enthusiastic and wanted me to to take the analysis right up to you know 2015 or whatever, um, and so that was an interesting you know process of how you respond to that and you take the feedback. But in in my case, I pushed back on that one and, and said it like just methodologically like this is equal parts history and law, and I like 2015 is too recent for an historical analysis. Even the year 2000 is kind of pushing it because you don't have that distance to evaluate things. So, so that's, that's interesting. And I've, uh, you know, that, that I think that's that the feedback I got was very valuable and it, it was a really big learning curve to, to know how to respond to that and, uh, and take the constructive pieces and, um, and not let reviewers change your project inadvertently either. So uh, yeah, that was, it was a big learning curve. And in the, process right in this process of editing you don't just make the book you know stylistically different but i imagine that your thinking evolved or, or really changed um about your topic did you experience that i did um experience some of that i you know i think probably not as much as i i would have under under different circumstances but i think because because of the nature of the project, it being exploratory, and the fact there was so little material, so I literally read everything there was to read about it. It, it was a pretty well formed as a PhD thesis in terms of the thinking. But even that being said, you know there were a few things that that came up in the course of turning it into a book that I, I realized I needed to address, um, or I, I had done some other reading, you know, in the interim, and then I, I wanted to incorporate. Um, insights. So there, there were two things in particular. Um, one, I, I, I realized I had a name for what was happening under the CCAA, uh, with, you know, based on, on work of others, which was, you know, we had a phenomenon where commercial pragmatism wins the day every single time. And so that, you know, then you can, you can look at commercial um, or interpretive pragmatism and, you know, what, what are the critiques of that? And you can incorporate some of that. So I didn't want to, you know, alter the project too much, but I wanted to incorporate a few of those ideas. So I, I did. And then the other thing is I had I had not really engaged with the distinction between inherent jurisdiction and judicial discretion. And that uh, was significant because at, at different points, judges had said they were doing one or the other. And so that was something that came up in the process. And I, 
I went and I, I delved into that. Like it didn't change my my overall argument, but I realized I needed to address that expressly because otherwise it'd be a question for readers. And that, um, as I delved into it, I, you know, it, it actually strengthened my argument. I think because the the idea was that judges under this act are using inherent jurisdiction, and therefore they have wider scope to do things than they would if it was just discretion. Uh, so I went back to the statute and I did some doctrinal analysis. And I realized that there's a provision in here that actually says a judge can make any order they think fit. And if that comes from the provision of the act, it's discretion. It can't be inherent jurisdiction. So uh, I I dealt with that and I then dealt with the relevant cases to make that point. Um, So that, you know, that kind of, I guess, strengthened the argument and, and made me a little firmer in my conviction that, you know, I know I think this is a, you know, I have strong argument here for what I, what I have set out to show um, so the, those things that, that changed my thinking. And then one other thing that a reviewer, um, mentioned was, you know, it, it's, you know, I'm quite critical of, of the, what's happened, but then toward the end, I'm kind of not as critical. And the reviewer was a little confused. Like, what do you think of this phenomenon? Like, are you pro or con basically? And, um, you know, that's where I think I'm still wrestling with that question. Like I addressed the stylistic stuff I needed to for the book. Um, you know, as a matter of normative development of law, like, I, you know, I, I think I'm con in terms of, I don't think this is the optimal way to do things. I think this raises profound questions about the role of judges in a democracy. And, you know, we need to get parliament to treat bankruptcy reform as a serious thing that needs attention and not let it go 50 years without making amendments but um you know at at a practical level you know that there's there are real strengths to this style of of dealing with corporate restructuring being ad hoc means you can be very responsive and this this approach shines in response to unanticipated events um the, the difficulty is when you you know take the same method you use for that unanticipated event and and use it on the plain vanilla insolvency so you know, there's there's tensions there, but I um, I, don't, I guess I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I, I think I, I still have that inner tension about you know what's optimal, and it's uh, it's a complex question, and I think it it's something that requires a nuanced answer. But I think I'm still wrestling with that even after writing the book. <laughs> and you gave us a little preview of what might be coming a few projects away. Um, but what are you currently working on now and what's coming next? Mm-hmm. Um, so a few things. So I've got a book with a co-author coming out next year on landmark cases in Canadian bankruptcy law. And we, we look at four cases that are constitutional decisions, which we say establish the, the parameters to have a robust modern federal bankruptcy power. So as I uh, alluded to before, the CCAA was very controversial uh, because it bound secured creditors. It's impossible to do restructuring without binding secured creditors because they, they usually have the largest debts. So uh, that's one of the four cases. And then there, there are three others that establish various others, other aspects. So that's that's been an interesting project to just look at the role of federalism in bankruptcy. That's It's really not something I thought would be a big part of, of understanding bankruptcy law, but in Canada anyway, it is a it is a very significant factor. And then um, 
my, my other current project is looking at a statute called the Farmers Creditors Arrangement Act, which was passed one year after the CCAA, and essentially um, provided a very low-cost administrative procedure based on ADR principles for uh, self-employed farmers, so who owned and operated their small farm in uh, Canada in the 30s. And that statute later became defunct and and then was kind of revived in the 80s and 90s during another farm debt crisis, and we got kind of a, a modern iteration of that. And that was something, so farm insolvency is, is done separately from other areas of bankruptcy uh, in Canada. It doesn't come under our office of the superintendent of bankruptcy. It goes under a different branch of government altogether. And, you know, the rest of bankruptcy is private delivery. This is public delivery. Um, and this has a, a very strong kind of mediation element. Um, and what's interesting is there had been no writing on it at all uh, from a legal scholarly point of view. So I, I uncovered that statute in the course of my CCAA project, and I thought, like, that has to be my next project. Because, like, how do we have this, you know, something that was extremely progressive in terms of the idea of debt mediation and helping small businesses stay in business? I mean, our other bankruptcy act didn't help you stay in business. It was a way to, uh, you know, liquidate your debts and get a discharge, but didn't help you stay in business. And so to get this in the 30s, I, you know, that just sparked my curiosity. So I've, I've done a lot of archival research on that. Unlike the CCAA, there is uh, an overwhelming number of records under the FCAA. So I'm, I'm taking the same kind of methodological and theoretical lens, but but I'm having to adjust my historical approach because it's not possible to consult everything. Um, and I, I've published a few papers on that. Uh, it's a, it, you know, it, it, it's probably a more dramatic story than the CCAA um, and also very much tied up with politics and federalism in Canada as well as regionalism. Um, and so uh, my, my next project, uh, book-length project, is going to be to uh, take, take you know, some of those articles and, and apply this uh, theoretical lens and hopefully produce a book along the lines of this reinventing bankruptcy law, but looking at farm insolvency. Wow, that sounds fascinating. And I hope that when you complete it, you'll join me again on New Books and Law to discuss this. Um, I'd love to. So... Um, for our listeners who might be interested in both um, reading the, this book and your upcoming one, uh, where can they find out more about your work or read, in particular, these papers that you mentioned that are going to be um, the the fuel for this new publication? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm on SSRN and academia.edu. So I've got papers up there. Uh, I, I do highly recommend um, uh, Federalism and Farm Debt, which talks about the political genesis of farm insolvency. Uh, that that is uh, you know fascinating read, full with uh, you know telegrams saying you know, if you do this, it will destroy Canada's credit, and uh, there's a lot of high drama involved with that one. And then uh, obviously reinventing bankruptcy at the University of Toronto Press, and you can buy that uh, Amazon, uh, various booksellers. And then my next book. A Debt and Federalism will be published with the University of British Columbia Press in fall 2021. Terrific. Well, again, Virginia, thank you so much for joining me on New Books in Law. Oh, thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure.